When the stars align, the rights shall come to bear. Illuminate the signs, the exiles shall be. And welcome to Kane and Rince Volume 11, Issue 524, Pyre. Joining me, Richard Davison, in Issue 524 are James Carter. Hello. Brian Edwards. Absolution. <laughs> <laughs> and Leah Hadu. And then when you click on the titles, it says, it's me, hello. You're, you're just really lucky, because I did moot about uh, introducing you as the bog dweller. Leah, who, <laughs> but, uh, I mean, that that would not that would also not be entirely inaccurate. <laughs> Lovely. Okay, so I'm going to issue a spoiler warning right at the front of this, because there's quite a lot of, of uh, content here, a lot of proper nouns, as you'll see as we go through there. So this is your warning. If you really do not want anything spoiled, then I'd strongly recommend that you go away and, and play Pyre first. It's about a 10 to 15 hour game, so you should be able to rattle through this. What is Pyre? Uh, this is a real challenge. From Supergiant Games' website, Pyre is a party-based RPG in which you lead a band of exiles to freedom through the ancient competition spread across a vast mystical purgatory. And I've made a, an attempt at doing this from my mind. Uh, and for me, Pyre is essentially what happens when a high fantasy RPG meets a choose-your-own-adventure novel meets NBA Jam? Question mark? <laughs> We don't have anybody screaming he's on fire, but um, <laughs> kind of close in, in some sections. Yeah, it does not... share some DNA there with the fire, <laughs> for sure. Uh, from downtown, I think that's where I'd go with <laughs> So a little bit about Pyre. Pyre is uh, both published and, uh, well, self-published and developed by Supergiant J- uh, Games, a uh, San Francisco-based independent studio formed by ex-EA employees Amir Rao and Gavin Simon. And of course, they are responsible for the previous games Bastion and Transistor, and what follows uh, Pyre is the, the much-renowned 2021's Hades. What I would recommend that you do is you return to Canaan's Volume 1, Issue Number 10, if you're interested in Bastion. Uh, James, I, I believe you're on that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, some time ago when I was a much younger person with a <laughs> functioning body and, you know, hope. <laughs> hope. <laughs> For Transistor, I would urge you to return to Kinnerman's Volume 4, Issue 183. And of course, Hades is a forthcoming show in Volume 11, Issue 4, excuse me, 532. Which I think most of us are coming back for, uh, if I'm if I'm not mistaken. Mm, Quite, yes. yeah. And, and we'll get into this as I go into my recording, so, uh, <laughs> or certainly my history. We've we've got a lot to get through here, so I'm going to take a quick canter through the uh, the credits. Uh, and this is quite easy, given that they are a very svelte studio over at Supergiant. So in lead design, we've got the return in Amir Rao and Greg Kasavin. Engineers Gavin Simon and Andrew F. Wang. The writing is, again, by Greg Kasavin. Music and sound by the uh, savant, let's say, uh, Darren Korb. Uh, the art is by J- Gen Z. 
voiceover returning is Logan Cunningham, Ashley Barrett, and Darren Corb, renowned Supergiant Games uh, voiceover artists and a, a suite of other voiceover recording artists. Uh, we've got studio operations by Michael Ailshi. I'm going to go with that. Uh, modeling and animation by Camille Venagas and UI and visual effects by Josh Barnett. A nice tight run through of that because that is, of course, pretty much the entire studio at that point. Released in uh, 2017 on July the 25th for Linux, PS4 and Windows. And then shortly thereafter on August the 3rd, 2017 on Mac, uh, Mac OS. Uh, reviews the aggravated score is 85% on PS4 and 84% on the the PC and Linux and that and that's taken from Metacritic and the average user score is 79% so a nice healthy score there sales are always exceptionally difficult to drive out especially with digital titles and it's it's no no different in this instance but what I did find is uh, a quote from Supergiant's website to say that uh, in 2017 both Transistor Pyre and Bastion have sold a combined 5 million units. <laughs> it would be certainly interesting to try and understand what the breakdown of that is and, and what the market is for, for this particular type of game. I bet and those then, numbers and, have gone up since And then uh, Hades then, trumped the lot of them put together. <laughs> yeah, imagine. Yeah. Indeed. Indeed. Let's go through our histories. In, in no particular order, James, I wonder if you can go first, please. Uh, this is a really weird one for me because uh, Bastion, uh, I was right there on XBLA day one, uh, enjoyed it. I was on the podcast back uh, 10, uh, 10, more than 10 years ago, um, uh, uh, as you mentioned. And uh, that uh, that game alone, was uh, loved that game. And it was the reason why day one I was there for a transistor and loved that one even more. Even though on the face of it, it's a slightly different genre, goes in a different direction. It's a different form of storytelling. Uh, again, something that's very deliberate about Supergiant. They want to change the not only the gameplay, but the style of storytelling. Um, and then, by all rights, I should have been there day one on this one, this game. And the only r- excuse I have for myself that I wasn't is 2017 was the year the Switch came out. And I did, with the likes of Hollow Knight, kind of hold on to play on Switch. And I felt like, from what I saw of Pyre which wasn't that much. I felt like I saw less of it in terms of advertising and just people talking about it than either Bastion or Transistor had kind of garnered. I'm not sure if that's just where I was looking or, or what, but I I just felt like it would be a game that would be suited to the Switch, and I still do, having played it now on PlayStation. Um, so I just kind of held off. Um, I ended up buying it in 2020, so I, I didn't even pick it up uh, anywhere close to launch, really. And then kind of Umdenad and uh you know procrastinated on playing it and this podcast was the the thing that finally got me to say no you know what let's sit down and play this so by the time i played this game i'd already played hades which i think is kind of an interesting place to come to this game uh from uh and we'll get into a bit of that later on when we talk about this game's kind of aesthetic and uh, the way that the uh the characters and storytelling work um but yeah, that's that's so I I literally played it in the last two weeks. Uh, is the first time I ever touched the game. Goodness me, I, I can't imagine having to play this game against the time limit. I wonder if um, <laughs> I wonder if that was so. So when were you playing up to? So sorry, what I mean to say is, when did you complete this? Uh, yesterday evening. Uh, came back <laughs> okay. from work and thought, right, I'm at work all day tomorrow. Uh, day of recording. 
Uh, I am going to have to stay up as late as I possibly can to get this game played, which is not a nice way to think about it. But as it happened, I was much closer to the end than I... Than I uh, well, I, I thought I might be, but I was kind of wary that there might be a sort of longer uh, tale to the game. But yeah, within half an hour of sitting down last night, I, I finished it off and therefore I had plenty of time to do some other reading and uh, mulling over how I feel about it. Indeed, indeed. Leah... I remember 2017 when nobody would play anything if it wasn't on the Switch. I remember those days. Hey! Uh, <laughs> wasn't just you, but yeah, yeah, shame on you. Um, no, I actually, <laughs> uh, yeah, I had played uh, Bastion back when it came out on XBLA during that whole summer of arcade. Was it the first summer of arcade that Bastion was? I, it I was, think it was, I think yeah. it might have been, yeah. Um, and I had actually... Uh, I believe this is correct. I have not gone back and checked, but I um, was at a PAX, a PAX East, before that came out. Because, And I think this, I, I, it was either before Bastion or before Transistor, and I'm pretty sure it was before Bastion, um, that I actually got to meet the uh, Supergiant team, um, just briefly, you know, just chatting at the booth or whatever, and um, mm. just really just wonderful team you know and i think it was like all of them there because there aren't very many of them um yeah. and um that the one thing that i really do remember about that um is that logan cunningham's voice is every bit as cool as you think it is uh in person <laughs> so um yeah. there's that but uh aside from that i played bastion loved bastion never really got into transistor um although i think i might have to go back and try it again um having relatively recently been through Hades and then been through Pyre again um, just before this recording as well. Uh, but yeah, I actually did not um, play Pyre uh, until, um, I don't know, some somebody uh, recommended it to me and actually wouldn't shut up about it. So um, <laughs> it, it was rich. Um, mm. but, but that was a good thing because I uh, I, I really did... Uh, enjoy it once i got to it which it turns out um was uh january of last year so january of 2021 uh in fact i started it according to my trophies on new year's day uh and uh went through you know in the in the week or so after that so i played uh through my first time january of 2021 and then i did another playthrough over this past week uh and finished that actually earlier today um, so yeah, I've, I've been through it twice and have uh, a decent amount of experience with Supergiant's other stuff as well. Good stuff. Brian? Uh, yeah, I think I'm going to be the only outlier here is that I think, uh, the only Supergiant game I have not completed is Bastion. Um, I got it as part of the Summer of Arcade and I'm not sure what it was. Like it, it didn't instantly click with me. I also very much recognize that at that time I was probably, let's see, I was 20... 24 25 and the whole world was like this is incredible so i think my 25 year old brain was like well it must be <laughs> terrible um but uh but yeah so actually i have the xbox one version of bastion that i that i just started playing the other day and, and i'm pretty sure i'm going to go through and complete that um so transistor comes out and it's getting some high praise so i'm like oh, i'll check it out and then i i remember i sat through over the course of two or three nights and i just could not put transistor down fell in love with it completely loved everything about the art the music the the storytelling style everything else so when Pyre came out, um, I was day one for that. Um, I remember getting really excited about the preview coverage because I, it like, I I remember Giant Bomb talking about it during their quick look, and they're like, "Is this a sports game?" And I was like, "What is happening?" Like it just like 
just just the idea that I I knew that whatever I was going to be playing was going to be very unique and different. I, I was super into the idea, so I picked it up and I played it over the course of a month. Um, it didn't hurt the fact that um that my son was about a month old, so I was spending a lot of time in the house at the time because we had a very young baby. Um, so you know, in between feedings and stuff, I would just pick up Pyre and I played through it. Um, so I played through it right when it came out. You know, I think my uh, I unlocked the trophy for beating the game. I think it was like August 11th of 2017, and I've been back through Pyre at least twice since uh, the entirety. I believe it was my third playthrough that I did leading up to this recording, and that would have been uh, probably the middle of May that I played through it over the course of maybe a two three week period of time. So, so quick question for you, Brian: Have you yeah. trophy slash achievement hunted this particular game? Uh, no, I have not. Uh, mostly because I'm an achievement monster, not a trophy monster. Like the, <laughs> the the points, not the rank, make my heart happy. So for whatever reason, um, but no, I uh, I did go through the only achievements that I do not, or the only trophies, excuse me, I don't have are the the multiplayer ones. Um, yeah. So I I would like to go get them at some point though, because because uh, yeah. yeah, there's not not to pl- lay out my cards too early, but yeah, there's I would not mind going back and playing some more Pyre. Wonderful. Okay, so so my history. Uh, okay. I mean, starting off with with Super Giant Games, I didn't play Bastion in the summer of release. I think it was around about the same time as I had a, a newborn child, and that just very much isn't conducive to to both purchasing and buying video games. But I did play um, Bastion on on iOS of all things on on my phone on the way to a, a long commute, and I've since been back and played Bastion on pretty much every console that i've owned since then love bastion transistor not so much i have a very strange relationship with transistor i've never completed a playthrough and in research into some of the the kind of development concepts for pyre i think i've actually located what it is that sort of turns me off about about uh transistor so I'll, i'll probably pick up on that as we go through some of the show um played hades love hades and love pyre i mean why are we recording about pyre so i think spite is is probably a very strong word but a very powerful (laughs) motivator for why we're doing this so so like i'm gonna come out and say this like for me pyre is like up there as like one of the best games i think i've ever played and when hades was doing the rounds and it was getting the critical acclaim I've, I've I've lambasted some of the Kane Rins crew now for a, a number of years to say, look, just, just stop, like stop, stop lavishing praise on on Hades and moving on. Go back and play a pyre, and I don't think you'll regret it. So when a new Hades was um, possibly being moved about as part of this, I, I felt an exceptional amount of spite and and the need to get it on here. So this is actually my <laughs> uh, pick for volume eleven. And honestly, like not to kind of break cave here for too long, I, I'm I'm so excited to be talking about <laughs> Pyre. It, it's just a, a real formative game for me. Um, in terms of my relationship with it, I've, I've played it numerous times, probably about ten times. Oh, wow. All the trophies I've gone through, different permeations of characters. Like I know the law really well. I'm fascinated by the concepts that go there. And for me, it's almost like somebody's went into my brain and said, "Look, we're, we're going to make a, a game for rich." Um, so like I'm I'm delighted to be here. I'm really honored to be hosting this show, and I'm looking forward to getting into some of the uh, some of the nitty gritty. So let's go. Um, let's begin with the the development. And what I've done is I've plucked a, a quote out here from Greg Cassavin. Uh, in an interview with GameDeveloper.com uh, hosted by Brian Francis. And he says, Pyre didn't begin as some kind of document or pitch. It was a concept Supergiant arrived at by rooting around in the darkness, being touchy-feely and looking for common ideas to build their next game around. 
and there's a quote here it says here we're interested in what happens when you face defeat and have a come back from and have to come back from it on the next day look at your friends in the face look at yourself in the mirror and deal with the consequences of the decision that you've made and i think this is for me this is really fascinating because what it what it essentially indicates is that the concept of actually having to deal with defeat is before the actual gameplay itself and they actually landed on that by well they landed on it almost like a sports title a pseudo sports title by actually looking into these and if you listen to some of the the no clip documentaries you can see some indications about how they actually have likened some of that thinking to do with um like these elite sportsmen who go and retire um brian what do you think about the idea of kind of using these kind of conceptual thoughts to kind of drive the gameplay out as opposed to driving the gameplay and then thinking about the thoughts in in the aftermath I think it's I think it's really interesting um just the concept of defeat as a motivator um in general like I mean, it's kind of goes against everything that we are used to in video games right um I also think it's really um the game utilizes concept on multiple fronts because there's the actual defeat and and the game rewards defeat in a way because I mean there's a literal trophy for lo- uh losing during a liberation right like they're like they they want you to explore those things so that's it's built into the development but also like even in victory like you're experiencing not just the defeat of the other teams that you become very familiar with and very like um very very clear about what their motivations are and and then obviously there's relationships that are built there that you learn about but then also even in winning especially in liberation right you're faced with the defeat of losing like a like a comrade you know losing a family member losing you know when when someone was liberated um i mean clearly it was meant to be a liberation back to you know to to to, to the upper you know world or to out of purgatory but for your team it felt like a death so it, it, defeat was kind of rolled into every kind of aspect of this game. So I mean, even when you're winning, you're losing something. And and yeah. and I find I find that it's very well done. And and that that moment after winning a liberation, right? And then when you go down to that little grassy knoll, I forget what the name of the location is. And and that te- the team is just kind of sitting around the wagon, just kind of like everybody's downtrodden, right? Even though you just you just did the thing, you know, like you just hey, congrats, you win. And then everybody's just kind of like. Oh man, I'm gonna miss whoever, whomever, and, and it's just it's it's so core to the process of every um, every moment in this game uh, about what defeat, what loss uh, really means, and um, and yeah, I, I look forward to talking about it more because it's just it's it's a really interesting concept to build a game around where the core gameplay is essentially playing a competitive sport where you want to win, but defeat is such a huge part of that. Uh, it's it's interesting because um my <laughs> I'm going to talk about Dark Souls. Let's just let's just roll <laughs> off that and go with Well, it. Rich already made a wrestling reference. You're talking about Dark Souls. Yeah. We're getting there. We are. Yeah, doing. yeah, absolutely. When do we Final need to talk Fantasy about Kingdom Hearts? Be, it, absolutely. Well, <laughs> well, Kingdom Hearts before the end of the show. Um, <laughs> um, that that's how I came to kind of resolve why I enjoy Dark Souls so much. Is I very quickly through Demon Souls and, and all the other uh, FromSoft games of that ilk got used to the idea that dying was not failure it was an opportunity to learn and that feels like i'm just being semantic and just dodging no but no it's not the game is designed that you have you are going to die you're going to be put back at the bonfire in exactly the same spot you're in and you're going to face exactly the same thing again um and that that is kind of where i ended up running get into a bit of frustration with pyre actually because 
they put in a, a restart right and it feels like when you are on the verge of or do lose there's a temp certainly for me there's a temptation there to say right okay clearly i did something wrong here i should restart this and pick a different set of characters or or tried some different tactics and that ended up feeling like so much of a punishment because you have to tab through all of the same dialogue again that you've already read and enjoyed but on the third or fourth time of trying that it becomes uh well if you're going to allow me to restart you should probably also allow me to skip this please and i think that learning that whether intentionally or not that was enough of a punishment for me for trying to restart that i ended up accepting the losses as part of the story and moving yeah. forward with them and i sort of think maybe don't put the restart in then i don't want to take the option away from other people but at a certain point it was damaging my experience of the game to have it there and that aspect i wish they'd just let me sit with the defeat a little more aggressively than they did almost yeah yeah indeed and and that might come down to Supergiant's approach to kind of conveying not just themes but principles and, and game logic in there and actually mm. a nice beautiful segue here because I found a really interesting quote and, and it speaks to my relationship with Transistor that I alluded to in my history with this game. Um, it's another interview with uh, Greg Kasevin who says uh, but this touchy-feely process uh, there's some major obstacles Supergiant's has to look out for in playtesting. One of these is this sense of negative confusion I qualify it as negative because we like to trade in confusion a little bit. In our previous games, we're okay with players feeling a little bit uncomfortable in what they do as long as they feel like they're engaged. And when I listen to some of your relationship with, with Pia James, I wonder mm. if that's just because they're not in the business of conveying like sort of mechanically how to play a game in, in such a way. And, and perhaps that's a failure on the part of some of that user testing to be able to demonstrate like this is the correct way in which we play yeah. in which we which we want you to play our games. When we talk about trading and confusion in games, I think it's possibly surfaced a lot more kind of um I guess like like not what's the right word here? It's possibly at the forefront of our minds because it has such a strong fact like it's essentially a facsimile for a sports game and i wonder if mm -hmm. there's an element of we are trained in our kind of relationship with games to win like it yeah. is an uncomfortable yeah. scenario to win and pia trades in this dichotomy of like not winning is as successful as winning yeah in yeah, fact definitely. not winning might actually be preferable to to, to win mm -hmm. given that we're expected to release some of our characters i think that's absolutely true because i I, most of my hesitation in in playing this game in the first place was that I had the um, impression that it was a sports game, like that that was the primary focus and that was what you were intended to do. And it's certainly part of it, but I don't personally think that this is, if you had to put a classification on it, I don't think that the classification that I personally would put on it would be a sports game. Mm. Um, it and and i think part of that is is almost undermined by the fact that it does have difficulty levels which is weird and i didn't think it was weird until i'm listening to you guys talk about the the benefits of failure in this game or the potential benefits mm -hmm. of failure in this game because if they really wanted you to be able to access that i mean i i guess it's still good for you know accessibility reasons or or anything like that but like 
if it doesn't matter why you lose, then why do I need to crank this game all the way down to easy to feel good about how I'm playing? Mm-hmm. I, I I didn't use the restart. Oh, well, that's not true. I used the restart option in um, the trials because those you do have to pass if you want the benefit out of them. Like, yeah. you can mm-hmm. fail yeah. them and you can try them again, but it doesn't do anything. They're still going to mm-hmm. be there and you won't get what you need out of them. So those I did use the restart option on pretty frequently if I yeah. felt like I was losing, which I did a lot for some characters. Um, but mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I had the difficulty level all the way down because I just wasn't interested in trying to bash my head against the sports portion of the game. But thinking about it now, if I were to go back, I might have a better experience if I move the difficulty level actually up, even if not all the way up, then maybe just to the, the normal rather than the um, rather than the easy option, yeah. just to have a better chance of losing <laughs> to, to, to yeah. be perfectly blunt about I, it. I mean, I'm, I'm nodding furiously here because I think this is this is exactly it. And I, mm-hmm. I, I think it, it so the, the kind of almost like the essay question about this is is pyro a sports game and i think it does a, dis- a disservice to think of it as a sports game and actually kind of identify against this particular qualification because for me it's like saying is football war you know like or is is like any kind of team sport war like it is a facsimile of this it's just that we're kind of identifying similar trends against something in order to try and understand a little bit better and i think that's possibly where Pyre comes undone a little bit, it doesn't necessarily differentiate itself in in, mm. in the way that we might intend it to because the active parts of Pyre, i.e. the rights, are so so close to like a game of rugby or a game of um football or I've actually got a different take on on why I think it actually helped me to think of it as a sports game. Um but I think asking is Pyre a sports game is a bit like asking if Ted Lasso is a football show. Right. Yep. It kind of, like you can have that argument in that debate, and and ultimately, like either answer is perfectly fine. No, Ted Lasso's not a like. If you want to encourage someone who doesn't like soccer, football, whatever you want to call it, or sports in general, to watch Ted Lasso, you tell them it's not. You tell them it's a sitcom. You tell them it's about people, not about the sport. If you want to get someone who likes soccer, sport, whatever, interested, you say to them, yeah, it's it's about the sport, but also you're going to kind of get some comedy and drama and, and you know, a bit of sort of sitcom and that sort of stuff. Um, it works either way. And I think Pyre works either way. I think you can say, no, this is about the characters and it's about the journey and the story and the rights are merely the kind of the catalyst propelling you forward through that. Um, but equally well, I think it actually helped me to think of it as a sports game because if I think of it as a narrative game, well, then the penalty for losing any one individual um right could be too great that could mean that a character that i i have a lot of emotional investment in like rookie uh when his first the story was telling me rookie needs to get liberated so i put him up for liberation we lost that fight that was devastating i didn't restart but i really wanted to whereas if i think of it as a sports game i know that in sports it's not this every game is not when you know live or die it's not a war in that respect what you're looking at is the long uh sort of full season um approach where you want to say right lose this game okay but are we still progressing are we still developing our skills and adding you know fine fine tuning our roster etc and thinking of it as more of a sport actually helped me think nope that's fine we can lose this match but the next one 
we can win and then you know it's all part of the bigger picture and so instead of right i need that 1920 to to zero record it's like no look at the leaderboard we're still good we're still fine the favor i don't know how that relates to the win loss record because it was not <laughs> in in when i was looking at the leaderboard and again that kind of makes me think okay that's fine we still know where our position is we still know what we're aiming for and we can still work towards that even with a loss so i think it can work either way yeah i think what i would say just to kind of summarize some of my feelings on this is mm. that i actually think that the the descriptor of being sports is almost almost this is a very pejorative way of putting it but it's a, it's a lazy summary of how the game is and i don't think of it as a sport and i'm concerned that that was possibly how the game was portrayed in some of the the kind of journalistic reviews and i think that might yeah. just be a, a concept of something that is um easy for people to to come to terms with and identify yeah. and, and and something that is ostensibly like a very esoteric thing for me it is it's a game about rituals in so much as sport is ritual i suppose and when you change that descriptor it hopefully should help change that kind of need to to drive out a victory in certain things so mm. but it's it's obviously an academic summary so it'd be interesting to see how like in in that sliding doors moment how things might have changed uh, mm. had we chosen a different set of words so let's let's move on if we can into the scenario now this is where things are possibly going to get quite beefy and i'm going to lean on some of my colleagues here to help me trying to to try and tease out some of the themes here but i've i've written a quick scenario just to try and help us to understand what pyre is so banished from the commonwealth which is also known as soul the player takes the role of the reader and the reader of a book of rights that is who's banished for the crime of literacy which should give you some indication of how things are up in soul the reader leads a band of exiles to freedom through ancient competitions spread across vast mystical purgatory who shall return to glory and who shall remain in the exile at the end of their days Throughout the land, the party encounters other groups of exiles, which starts the rites. The rites take place on a field with two columns of fire, known as pyres. Each team, known as a triumvirate, appear attempts to destroy the opposing pyre by launching a single glowing orb at it, which steadily whittles away at its strength. Victory in the rites proves the worthiest exiles, who can return home, absolved of their transgressions. I think... Um, Immediately, really, what Pyre deals in is, is this kind of concept of, of crime and punishment and vindication uh, through this kind of tradition, sport, right, ritual, whatever you want to call it, against a, an authoritarian government who banish people from society for crimes that really, in our kind of Western society, are likely to be deemed as, uh, as not criminal for that matter. The, the, the concept of, of being literate as a, as a means to try and excommunicate somebody into a, a purgatory seems to be unthought of. But the idea that somebody's able to return I don't victory. know. Intelligence <laughs> can be considered a crime in some countries. Well, well, go on, Leah. Take us through some of your thoughts on this. I, I don't know. I, I think it's, I mean, it's obviously an exaggeration, right? But I think that they, I, I think that people coming into this thinking that it's not political are going to be very upset is, um, <laughs> is, is, I guess, where I would land on that. I, yeah, I mean, I, I, was, I was obviously being a little sarcastic there, but I do think that they have taken existing issues with um, modern society's kind of need to have everything under it. Oh, this is a tough one. Um, modern societies, a, a modern societies need to have everything kind of pinned down and controlled by a small group of very yeah. specific people. Um, and they have 
made the version of that that allows for literal excommunication and you have to perform something pretty spectacular in order to get back into the good graces of those that are in power. Be entertaining and you'll be fine, but if you're not entertaining enough, then you get to stay down there with the other criminals until everything is over with and the 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 those in power stay in power. And it's interesting that those who are liberated, it's almost unthinkable to the government that they would ever want... Like, if you have struggled in the muck and then climbed your way through the the rights back to uh the commonwealth it is unthinkable to them that you wouldn't just take whatever you are given and if you're treated as a as one of the elite now a champion you would just lap that up and you would then reinforce this whole uh punishment system um, oh, absolutely. If you were, yeah. it, you were, and, and there are characters who very much do that. You find out that mm. the, um, the, uh, kind of voice that has been, uh, yep. instructing you and, yep. and mocking you for the most part this entire time is a former exile who managed to work their way into a position of power. And that's that's kind of part of the whole plan to that, that you, I, I'm jumping ahead a little bit here, but, you know, the, the whole plan. The, about getting your people out to kind of start this revolution is centered on that, right? It's centered mm -hmm. on the fact that if you get out, then obviously you're not a danger anymore because you're just supposed to be so grateful that these powerful people would have let you out of trouble that you'll do whatever they want and you'll mm -hmm. you'll be the one who um, who turns to the people who are still down there and continues the cycle. And, and, yeah, and because so, you benefited from the way things are, you exactly. will continue the status quo. And if that isn't... <laughs> Uh, a story for the ages i don't know what is well before we bring brian in on this because i'm sure he's got some thoughts on this given his occupation um <laughs> i don't think there is such a thing there as, as bringing things too far ahead because um I, I don't see a way to tell the story without the characters and obviously mm. we're making an allusion here to the arch justice androboles the ninth um <laughs> yeah. who was also known as as brighton and he was the the first um uh, the first person who who did the rights and was successful in in ascending from the downside into uh, the Commonwealth, where he adopted that sense of status quo, and and he he, I suppose what we're we're seeing here is that the the victory of ascending is being given an opportunity to go back into the status quo and and prop up the status quo in a, in a way yep. um whereas every other character well not every other character there's a few exceptions but most of the other characters in the game have um sort of grand designs to overthrow and supersede and in fact actually it's the entire plot of the game volford sandalwood's um grand design is to try and sort of create a whether it's a peaceful or a violent revolution, a revolution nonetheless, just to try and create a fairer and more equitable society. Yeah, I, so I mean, this is this is heavy stuff we're talking about, um, and and just the idea um, that that one's actions in these rights, you know, the one's greatness through these rights can allow them to be elevated back to to the commonwealth to and expecting them to kind of to, to get to just kind of fold in um it is 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 really an allegory for criminal justice in general and mm -hmm. and, and also for for uh, in a lot of other ways for servitude um and and more particularly like um uh 
I don't want to say slavery because that might even go too far, but but just the idea that that those that are suffering and who have been made to suffer and who have been mm. cast out to suffer when granted one kind of glimmer of hope or goodness or decency should all of a sudden, you know, be thankful for yeah. that. Um and 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 it's it, it's really interesting. I I actually um I actually think that this game probably does a better job than most pieces of media of of conveying that sense of um the, uh, this is way too simple but that 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 you know what one one right does not does not cancel out a thousand wrongs and and I think the the struggle of the Nightwings, the struggle of Wolford Sanderwood, and, and the kind of this long journey that they've been on from times before you as the reader have even been mm-hmm. into the downside, it there's such a weight to that experience of, of their experiences of being cast out and what does it actually mean about being brought back into the Commonwealth? Is mm-hmm. it going to be like different characters have their motivations, right? One wants to be with their mother, one wants to see uh, long lost friends, one thinks that they're going to go back into the servitude of of the military service they were in before and, and be this this great hero. And and is it really heroic to go back to a life of servitude, essentially? Yeah. And I and think it's it, really interesting. It's I, 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 there's a lot to unpack there, and I'm I'm doing a bad job of of being eloquent about it, but um, it's not really. It's not something that's easily definable. Yeah. If it, so, I mean, what we can possibly do is just take it up a level here and, and, and sort of have a look at it in the context with which it's presented. Like, a lot of the crimes that these individuals are indicted of are things that we take as kind of human rights. So, for example, the reader, his crime is, or her crime, or their crime for that matter, is actually literacy. And the implication mm-hmm. there yeah. is that being literate and therefore being educated and given the voice and the kind of uh, mechanism with which to try and resist against an authoritarian government is seen to be a crime. That's something that we can identify with. And if you look at Joe Dariel, for example, it's insubordination, not following an order. Like these are kind of authoritarian crimes that allow yeah. us to easily identify against us. That it kind of sadly exists in a as a facsimile to the types of governments that both you and and, and James and I have, for example, mm-hmm. is um is is a slightly harrowing indictment. The game is nothing if not the rights and the characters, and and the player takes obviously the the role of the reader, who is a a person who's cast out from from the. Uh, from the the upper lands, if you were, to the downside, um, obviously, as I've mentioned, for crimes of literacy, but he's joined by a, a ragtag band of of other um, rights members known as the Nightwings, and each of these groups within the areas are, are, are called triumvirates, and, and steady on, because I think this is going to get very proper noun heavy, but uh, <laughs> for the purposes of describing the Nightwings, the Nightwings are made up of, of a, a group of players. Let, let's do this. I think maybe the easiest and most natural way to describe the Nightwings might be if we kind of take turns in describing who our kind of ideal triumvirate is, the, the trio of um, of rights users and, and um Ooh, yeah, okay. How I like we've this. made up our yeah. teams. Brian, let's yeah. go. We'll also I'm use this excited. as a profile yeah. and exercise, Brian, to <laughs> try and determine who you are. Um, yeah, so uh so obviously there's there's eight playable, nine playable um Nightwings. Um and uh for me personally, I was always picking Nightwings uh at the beginning based on their skills and the in the rights, but then later on for narrative reasons, as James referred to earlier, there would be reasons that you'd want to use certain people. But my ideal triumvirate for the Nightwings was Sir Gilman, um, who is a worm knight, literally a worm. Uh, he was a former member of a triumvirate known as the Pyre Hearts. 
um, uh, Rookie Greentail, who is a dog uh, with a mustache, unless you're a monster and made him take it off at the beginning, um, who's kind of a... Uh, He's like a he, he he reminds me of kind of like a like a like a lovable scamp kind of yep. maybe a little shady, you know, probably done some <laughs> some thievery along the way. He'd pick your pocket, but um but but is but is a good part of the group. And I am was a big fan of using Jodariel, um who is a kind of a demon. Um she's one of the one of the original um uh people that you meet up with when you get to the downside. It, it's just kind of um headman headwin uh rookie and Jodariel and uh, and she is just a kind of this big horned demon and she's a bit of a badass and um and and that was my ideal three. However, those ended up being my last playthrough. The first three that I um put through in the ascension process uh uh for for reasons I can get into later. But yeah, that's those are... fascinating. My my if I can go, mine is mm-hmm. uh completely different than Brian's, <laughs> which um so it, I, I found it difficult. I, I ended up playing the, the second time around a little bit differently than I did uh the first time. The first time I tried more to settle into like a not a single um configuration, but like to be well, a little can't, bit more consistent. Because of, of the mechanics yeah that's true yes but but like i would use more frequently the same characters um this time around i i tried to kind of vary it up more um to make sure that i had um appropriate characters in when there was a story reason to do so and to uh kind of game it a little bit with regard to um you get what what equates to kind of rest experience kind of um when you leave somebody out they'll get a little bit of extra uh, experience if you put them in after that uh as opposed to just using consecutive uh it's like turning on share battles. exp in a pokemon game exactly yes <laughs> yes exactly uh, yes. <laughs> um but my I, if i had to pick my ideal party um it would actually be um uh bertrude who is um kind of the the bog crone uh, who has some really uh, great um uh I, I keep wanting to say spells uh but the the attack that she does where she casts her aura if you do her trial you get something that lets it go through solid objects which is just game breaking um mm. and is surprisingly mobile for um like she's her sprite her her actual character model is a little bit bigger and usually uh like with Jodariel the bigger characters tend to be slower um, but she is surprisingly mobile for for all that. Um, and then, um, uh, well, her 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 name in my first playthrough was May. Um, in my second playthrough, it was the correct Bay. name. In my in my second say. playthrough, it was oh. Bay, just because oh. I wanted I wanted to. Um, oh, wanted she to was Shay for me every Bay. single time. Oh, oh Brian, me. This is Brian. Like, this is wretched. My dog's name is Seamus. <laughs> Everybody, give me a break. <laughs> Shay, I call him Shay. It just it worked out. Um, but yes, uh, May, Bay, Shay, however, however you like, um, she, uh, would also be in my party. She's, um, she's interesting because I don't believe that, um, her, she didn't really commit any crimes that I know of. I, I'm not sure what it says in her, like, little biography as to why. Yeah, yeah so this is a tough one. I think yeah. the implication is that she has some deficiencies. Um, she, yeah, she... They most of the when you pick her name uh, when you pick her up it's it's pretty early on she's I think the first character that you come across who is not one of the three that finds you, uh, and 
all of the names that you can kind of give her or suggest that they might have been her names. Uh, and I, I assume that just whatever you pick, she's like, yep, that's it. That's my name. Um, but they all have kind of uh, descriptors attached to them. Uh, and May the Moon Touched is one of them. So the the kind of implication there is, is that she is not she is not like the others somehow she uh, her descriptors are um things like she she speaks to the um uh she speaks to the scribes pretty frequently so she's yeah. she's not i i don't think that they are suggesting necessarily that she is deficient in any way i'm suggesting that they that she didn't they fit can't the mold understand her perspective in, exactly. in the way that that many um people throughout history have been associated with they made them it's the reason why and for, for this reason may is a character that i use but the, the reason that she's described as moon touch is obviously closely affiliated with the word lunatic and, and mm -hmm. all of the things that associate there this this like understanding that that she thinks differently or has a, a slightly different perspective yeah. on the world and communicates differently, and because of that, just simply because she doesn't fit the mold, this is the reason she's exiled. Because mm -hmm. we must fear what we don't understand, of course. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so um, um, my my play oh, wait, wait, wait! Her... I didn't do my third. I'm sorry. Oh, sorry, sorry. Go, go ahead. Yeah. Because the third's the important one. It's Tizo. Tizo's nah. my boy. Uh, Tizo is a uh, a drive imp. Um, you come across. Some of them, like, they're in your wagon from pretty early on, um, but he is an actual um, character that you can you bring along with you, and you find out uh, as the story progresses that he um, not only was a member of former configurations of the Nightwings, he's also a descendant of, like, one of the scribes, um, so he's he's kind of special amongst his own kind in that way um yeah. but i i don't know he's 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 my boy he's very so m most of my characters um shared the, the reason that i kind of picked them other than just that i like them because i liked all of them in their own way um but um it just i i found that high mobility was really a thing like mm -hmm. they didn't do that much damage but i found it really difficult to work with characters like jodariel who i love as a character um but i i just found it really tough to kind of use her in the rights because she has some great abilities and she does a ton of damage to the pyre but she's very slow so yeah i, don't I mean know. it's that's, okay that's, it's okay to have the opin opinions that are wrongly i know <laughs> i know so i'm told my boy tizo <laughs> takes a lot of a lot of crap and i have i have a stuffed tizo he's he's very adorable but um. <laughs> initially i went for all speed all the time it was uh, Rookie and Sir Gilman and uh, Faye, who is clearly the correct name, because <laughs> like she's a spiritual character, but in that kind of supernatural style way, in the way that would be misunderstood as being, you know, um, someone who had um, mental health issues or something like that. You can see why she got cast down here, absolutely. But Faye is a word that's associated with fairies and that kind of thing. So yeah, Faye, obviously. Um and I'll take no other option, thank you. Um, <laughs> but, so Sir Gilman was the first one that fell out of that triumvirate for me, simply because I'd let Joe Dariel be liberated first. I agree with, with Leah. I When things go wrong with Joe Dariel, there's no coming back from that. You're not chasing a character down to stop them getting to your pyre. That ain't happening. Um, so I had the opposite problem with Sir Gilman, which was I was moving too quickly with a speed of like 25 or whatever it was around the map and, and also couldn't really uh, either, I, I couldn't interact with other 
with op- opposing characters terribly well. I was either making a beeline for their pyre or just missing and messing up badly. So um, Rookie was probably my favourite uh, character overall because by the time I got the triple jump, it was ridiculous what I was doing with Rookie. Um, but the three characters that by the end of the game worked so well together for me were three that I did not want to touch when I first got them. And that is Pamitha, Tizo, and Volfred. I could not make them work when I first got them. Bring them in, letting them be upgraded, understanding how to use them. Like Volfred, I, I, he's the character I did not get the pyre, like uh, 200 damage to the pyre um, achieve, uh, trophy, sorry for. I never went near the opposition pyre with him. I set down the, the little um, orb that he, or the turret that he has, set him next to it so he had a giant big um, aura around him and just left him next to my pyre. And it meant that no one could get near it as long as I was smart about it. And then Pamatha flies, Tizo flies. Tizo can just go out and wreck shop, taking out two and three, uh, two or three opponents at the same time. And Pamatha can just charge into them and then like chain that into another. It was ridiculous by the end of the game what I was doing. Like, I could not get near to defeating the true Nightwings when I first fought them. By the end of the game, I ended up letting their leader go up to liberation because it seemed narratively the right thing to do. I was like, they didn't get near my pyre in the final right that I'd had for my liberation. It was ridiculous how much my playstyle changed through the course of this game. Yeah, I mean, my my approach is is kind of hard and heavy. Like, I um mock relentlessly the air for uh, affinity with uh, Tizo because it's a He's character a that I, I don't particularly enjoy. I think it's a little bit too erratic. But my my ideal team makeup is is Bertrude, who is MVP, like absolutely like the mobility <laughs> that Bertrude has, and as Leah's alluded yeah. to, that ability to cast through solid objects mm-hmm. in in an arc, it just. It, it just dominates and of course the there's a, a sort of mechanic in the game where the, the heavier and the, the greater and obviously by extension the lack of mobility that your character has the more damage you will inflict on the the opponent's pyre yeah. so my team makeup was predicated around manipulating this so my team was bertrude joe dariel uh, and volfred sandalwood and volfred mm. is uh, much in the same way that, that james has explained not a very natural character because there's very limited mobility it's also a very unnatural way of moving in the way that he sort of zips across the 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 screen but yeah. what you can do is you can just dominate the areas and really mm. kind of channel uh other players into certain uh, environments and traps and such just to really kind of have a fun game so it's a really nice interesting way of taking it from maybe not being like a pure NBA jam style sports game into something that's a bit more strategic. Other notable characters, uh, of course, uh, include Tarek the Bard and Celeste, who is um, the the keeper of the Scribes Gate. Leah, (laughs) I'd like you to describe who Tarek and Celeste are, please. Uh, Okay, yeah. So uh, they are... um kind of the referees i guess you'd say of the uh for going with this the sports analogy here uh they they um well Tariq um finds you uh, well actually i guess he's with you kind of um from the start isn't he like he's in he's yeah, in the so, wagon so his client is volford sandalwood yeah, yeah. And, and he's in the the black wagon just sitting in the corner mm-hmm. minding his own business <laughs> yes um so he uh he kind of finds you and is or or has has found you uh as as the game starts and um he 
uh, he is with you and kind of guides you along. Like he's he shepherds you towards the uh, the um, the final. Well, not the final, right? Uh, I guess ultimately it is the final, right? But uh, towards the uh, the appropriate places uh, to um, to conduct the rites, and then ultimately to go to the liberation rite when uh, enough time has passed and when the uh, when the stars tell you that it is time to do so. Um, Celeste is kind of his counterpart. She remains, from what I can tell, at at the gate uh, to the liberation rites, and is a, a bit of a um, a bit of a judge to kind of uh, see whether you are permitted to conduct the liberation rite. Uh, and then the two of them together, you. I, I really think that it's interesting how they handled it because they don't tell you a ton about either of these characters, but just from the way that they interact and the way that the way that the whole situation is approached, it's very obvious that they have some kind of history together, that yeah. they have been doing this for quite some time, that they know each other very well. Um, in, in I, I don't know if this is um, true in all of the endings, but in the endings that I got, um, they kind of allude to the fact that maybe they just went off and had a nice quiet life together so like yeah. there's some kind of relationship there beyond just they are co-workers yeah um, well the implication is that they based around the the ending credits song is that they basically i guess blast off into the stars yeah, pretty much yeah <laughs> yeah they, um, i always got the feeling from their interactions that they like it, it felt like they were at least emotionally involved if not romantically indeed. involved with each other yeah. that's the way it feels like it has that that energy of like seeing an ex out in the real world. Oh yeah, it's like, yeah. hey, uh, you you look well. Yeah, <laughs> yes, I'm I'm good. How is the family? Like you know, it has that that energy just kind of like draped all over it for sure. And you know, maybe this is a bit of a, a strained analogy, but they they are almost like the color and the play by play commentators as well of the, <laughs> the 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 rites. When you go to the ascension rite, um, they they they'll sing a song, and we'll come to the music later on. Um, the song's name is ah, goodness me, I forgot what it is. It's um never to return, which is a, a modular song, uh, which is an indication of. Who you who you battling against and where the Nightwings have came to to go on that? It's a fascinating bit of music. Yeah. And before I, I guess this probably needs to be explained that um, it, returning in, in grand form, of course, is both uh, Darren Corb and Ashley Barrett as both both of um, these two characters. So it's nice to hear those familiar voices and stalwarts of the Super Giant games. So let's have a chat about uh, the opponents because, of course, what would a well, let, let's go with ritual or sport. What would a ritual or sport be without somebody to oppose? The Nightwings, uh, as a group, are up against several different teams known as the Triumvirates. Each Triumvirate... Well, the way that the uh, the Book of Rights describes it is that there are 40 Books of Rights available across the downside. And each of those uh, 40 is given to an individual. And those individuals are then consolidated into, I think it's about nine teams known um, as the Triumvirates. And each of them embody almost a different um, principle or ideology. And they're, they're bound together by this. And uh, they will fight against the, well, fight, they'll battle or perform a, um, a ritual against the Nightwings to determine who is the most um, successful and therefore the most worthy to ascend across up into to the, uh, the Commonwealth. Brian, um, not to put you on the spot here, do you have any yeah. particular favorite triumvirates? 
Uh, yeah, I, can, I honestly can't remember which name they are. It's the the dogs. It's not the acute. No, I was going to say that too. It's the, they're the fate. They're the fate. The fate. The fate. Yeah. Yeah. Where it's the the old kind of weathered dog and his like young angsty son who's like, <laughs> "Come on, Dad!" Like, and he's just like, "No, it's all about the right son." Like, you can just hear that. Like, <laughs> like I I really love playing against them uh, only because um, there's something about and this is going to get a little weighty, but like like the like the irreverent respect the father has for like the ritual and like the process and the son being like, no dad, we got to get out of here. Like, this is the worst. Everything about this is the worst. He's like, no, don't, don't disrespect the scribes kid. Like I like, Mm. I really like that energy. And then also just based on art, attitude, energy, manly tinder stuff is just (laughs) incredible. (laughs) He is just like, he is like a used car salesman. He is a, like, just, it's just like, um, uh, he, he he just drips with like phony charisma. I love he the energy of, of him. Work. And again, I forget the name of their their triumvirate as well. But he's kind of like the chastity. Chastity, thank you. Um, he he's like the like he's the same species as Volford, right? He's like he a is, tree yeah. man, yeah. Yeah. yeah, basically, yeah. Um, but yeah, I really like him because because he's like you know, nah, you're just gonna I'll I'll basically I'll I'll make things work out real nice for you if you let me win this, and then like <laughs> as you're not letting him yes. win, he gets more and more pissed, and like I. Yeah, I really, I enjoyed talking, talking. To yeah. I would like to, uh, we've got time, let's go around. I wonder if anybody has any particular favorites that you want to bring out. I was going to say the fate as well. Uh, I, I also kind of liked the, um, uh, I, I liked the story kind of, of the, the, I think it's the essence, the ones, yep. the, the, um, the, the bird ladies. Um, mm. Oh yeah, Tamitha, Tamitha, right? Yeah, yeah. Tamitha yeah. and yeah. her, uh, her crew. Um, I, I liked the kind, the kind of, um, clash between her and her sister and mm-hmm. and how that kind of played out um but yeah I, I i thought that the fate were nice because you know it, it it was nice to have a leader of a team who didn't seem like they were holding it against you like mm. they they're down <laughs> here the same as us we're all going to do our best i don't hate you uh and i'm going to respect you but we are going to try and beat you like that yeah. i i appreciated yeah. that it was nice <laughs> uh yeah for me it was the <laughs> it was the two teams that completely stumped me when I was playing them, actually. Partly because of that, but also because of what they meant narratively. So the essence, um, Tamitha uh, lost to them back-to-back twice, and she ended up being liberated. And that was the point at which I thought, oh yeah, no, I I wanted her to be liberated anyway, so it's fine that I've lost. Uh, And the true Nightwings, they absolutely destroyed me first time (laughs) that I played against them. And I was just like, what is happening? Uh, but they forced me to change my play, and uh, and I loved um, the story between Orlek and Volfred and Brighton and Tizo. Um, he had so many sort of individual conversations uh, with Tizo, and, and uh, he it's just teased out uh, little bits of their previous relationship mm. and who they were to one another and why he felt so aggrieved at what had transpired, whether or not he really believed Volfred turned on him. Um the fact that his hurt was so bad and then I just happily sent him up as the, the in the final liberation uh, where uh, Pamitha had been my chosen uh, liberatee uh, and she kind of uh, passed the choice to me um, and I then chose Orlek uh, and it was for me absolutely the right thing to do uh, he to, to zip forward in the story he ends up, uh, you find out that he was a doctor and he goes back to being a doctor 
and uh, is absolutely someone you wanted up there. And I felt like him being liberated was the right thing for the uh, the mm, revolution. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Whereas there were other people who, other leaders, I found out their reason to want to be uh, liberated, and they would have been no benefit to the rev- revolution that was going on. So mm. it, it was nice to have that be- strong feeling towards some characters. There's definitely a certain weight about the, those demon characters. The, the game does a, an especially poor job of explaining this, but the the reason that they kind of adopt a demonic um sort of phenotype if you like it is because they are affected by the downside this is what happens to one when one spends mm-hmm. a great deal of time in the downside so there's already a kind of uh, an unwritten implication there that these people have spent a lot of time in this environment stewing over their ideologies and their motivations and it really comes across with with Orlick and 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 also with Solia Mur who's the the kind of um the uh almost the the creator of the rights um in terms of of my particular favorite um triumvirate i would probably go with the dissidents which i I don't think i would ever have said normally but it's the it's the the one with barker ashpore who was essentially yeah a dog version of johnny rotten from the sex pistols yep um (laughs) Uh he is also known as the and i love this the chaos mongrel which is a beautiful description of exactly (laughs) what he is but basically barker and the dissidents are a group of um triumvirates who actually don't want to ascend they love it in the downside they like embody the chaos for them for them this this is the the best possible um indication and and sort of scenario that could find themselves in just this eternal battle and just identifying against other people and it was the the moment where i actually came in terms of the fact that this might be me reaching but each of these triumvirates it's not just a, a group of people who are united by their ideologies it's almost like a kind of i don't know like a facsimile of what would occur in the absence of a structure. So we talk about the the Commonwealth and Sol as this place with this very strict, rigid government, authoritarian, and the downside is this place with absolute chaos. And each one of these triumvirates almost is like a beautiful indictment of what kind of society would be uplifted as part of this just absence of any kind of structure. So it, 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 it's just a, like another layer of depth to an already um, complex narrative game. So let's let's move on. Let's have a, a quick chat about um, the artwork. Of course, this is the again like another fascinating um, and successful indication of, of Gen Z's talent. And and I, when you look at the the no clip documentaries that there, you can see that she was delighted to move towards high fantasy. And you see this exercise, this part of some of the character models that are just unlike anything you've seen in previous. Uh, Supergiant games. But I'm going to take to the forum, and we have a, a correspondence here from Gerard who wrote. It it felt like the visual novel format allowed artist Gen Z to get a bit more ambitious and varied in her designs for the myriad characters, and also allowed for them to be compellingly written and bounce off each other in interesting ways. Leah, um, I wonder, like, did the art strike you as something that was quite appealing as part of the game, or or not? Oh, absolutely. I I I really enjoy the Supergiant's kind of style in general. That's one of the things that has drawn me to it, and I, I feel like that. There's this. This sounds like such a generic thing to say, but but there is so much difference between each of the characters, and yet they do all have a coherence to them that makes it look like they do belong together and that they are all part of the same world. So yeah, it's we should. I, I guess we should mention that like it's not um, the the visual novel parts are not um, animated for the most part. It is um, more of the 
uh, kind of talking heads style of of RPG dialogue. Um, but just the portraits are so expressive and just so beautiful, I think, that, um, yeah, I, I didn't mind that at all. I did not feel like anything was missing by not having, like, a fully animated um, cutscene uh, between everything. And, and, I mean, there there is animation, um, particularly on the map, but um, just for the most part, when the characters are speaking, it's not that. Um, but, yeah. Love yeah, you, you get some um, slight changes of expression when it mm -hmm. suits and and when Pamatha takes her helmet off, she realizes she has helmet hair. <laughs> There's that kind of <laughs> that kind of thing. You do get a lot of character comes through in them. Um, it was a really weird thing for me to come to this game after playing so much Hades, because it felt like everything I was seeing, I was like, oh, th this is a stepping stone to Hades, mm. and that's a really unfair way mm -hmm. to think of it. But having seen Hades first, it's like, oh, this is like this is the direction they went, and then with Hades kind of went further in that direction. You know, people talked a lot about the individual characters and the way that Hades looks. And a lot of it is here, the imagination, the kind of um, the mythical and kind of influence on a lot of these characters, whether it be demonic or fairies or, uh, you know, sea creatures, that kind of thing. Uh, wooden, you know, tree people, if you like, um, and, and kind of Val the Valkyrie sort of aesthetic of Pamatha. There's just loads going on here that's really, really uh, interesting. And even the the point at which I my jaw hit the floor, and it did for my my partner who was watching as well. Just the the like the world map screen for a word mm. of a better phrase, where the carriage is driving around. The animation on that carriage as it hops and jumps, and then later uh, turns into a boat and, and sails and flies. It is unbelievably good looking, and just everything and and. That's a largely static world with just you kind of moving through it, but it looks so stunning. There's a, a slight difference in the the art and motion when compared to the the visual novel style gameplay. Of course, when you go into the rights, you don't have those character models realized in the same way that you do in those portrait pictures. No. The the models themselves wear the raiments and then the masks, and there's a, a conceit there that they do this in order to mirror some of the um the scribes, the the original um group of, of individuals who were cast out of the downside who kind of conceived of the rights as a way to try and uh, ascend back into into the society in the commonwealth but um it, it is like a, a conceit that's absolutely not a compromise as far as i'm concerned i think in terms of the actual gameplay the way that the the auras appear you know the the way that the pyre erupts and and explodes and just this sort of like cacophonous um, which is a weird way of describing it because that's obviously aural rather than visual, but it is like a, a visual feast as you kind of plunge the celestial orb into the pie. It just all comes together in such a colourful and, and interesting way. And I think it's it's made even more interesting to me because obviously, given that the game uh, is, is predicated on the, around the idea of being guided by the stars, everything in the rites takes place at night. So it's just this beautiful, well, most of the time, this beautiful kind of dark aesthetic with just these really bright... Um, fascinating light colors just exploding all over the place it's just a, a real visual feast and and this is really difficult for me to do because the visuals and the art kind of come together in such an elegant way but just on 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 the music and and some of the kind of um the audible stuff as well like darren corb's soundtrack is just the same quality the exceptional quality that he brings through to everything and i think i really want to highlight i mean there's so much music in this game but i really want to highlight yeah. a few tracks is just something that i think really stands out 
um there's a lot of of tracks that contain english spoken language um as a way to try and sort of emulate that kind of commentary that we talked about a little bit earlier um and in in particular the never to return tracks i, I think i've spoken to every single one of you independently about listening to the 30 different variations of that track that all follow that kind of light motif because each one of the triumvirates has got their own like song if you like and it it's woven in and they've, they've got their own dialect excuse me dialogue in there that indicates like what they who they are what binds them together what makes them the triumvirate that they are and how they reflect some of the core values that they've got yeah it's hard to not get hyperbolic when talking about this soundtrack for me um but it's it's full and intricate in its design in a way that you don't necessarily see i think i think in most modern games these games made you know from the you know the kind of xbox 360 era and beyond like there's been an expectation of soundtrack level that's that's been raised you know dynamic soundtracks uh uh songs that change depending on what you're doing in the game or depending on what characters you're using all these things have kind of been used before but the way it's implemented here is is nothing short of uh uh amazing and also like 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 painfully intricate like like the amount of thought and uh, care that was taken into these songs and how they were written and the lyrics and how they match with each other and and kind of the way that this kind of sh- lute string based instrument kind of pervades throughout everything it, it's just it's just incredible um it's one of those soundtracks that that's always playing uh in my head or on my phone or, or somewhere where it just um the the ability of Darren Corp to convey the emotion of the moment through the soundtrack is is very special and be, and when you when you do these things on this level like when you have the art and the music and all these things coming together like all it does is it does if you're already liking the game it's only going to make you like it more you know what i mean it's only it only enhances the things that you already like because you have these these audio cues that come in and just kind of hit make a moment hit home in a way that that it wouldn't have without it it's just um yeah it's i i think it's incredible i i it's up it's there. the advantage of having Dar- darren corbin embedded into the team embedded in as that kind of you know house composer like he is integral to the the actual creation and the creative process and and like you know like uh, some of his music does a lot of heavy lifting so at the start of the show the listeners will have heard in the flame which is essentially a song which describes absolutely everything that you need to know about pyre in order to get the most out of it music is a very integral part of the world in this in this story that they're telling um because a lot of it is intended to be music that like the characters would also be hearing so you know the the music that's playing during the rites uh is being sung by Tariq and Celeste uh and you know you th- there are a few sections where like your what your your actual team is hearing is is played by Tariq as he's traveling with you and I, I i really like that concept in a game um and just the skill with which this is executed is is just beautiful and and heartening and it, it fits really well uh so yeah this is this is one that i i appreciate very much as well that moment where the duet starts during the liberation right like when, like that first time, and Tarik's like, "Are you ready, Celeste?" And she's like, "Yep, here we go." And then you realize they're gonna sing through the entirety of your game. It just like it adds to the the gravitas to use the pretentious word, but like it really brings some weight to that moment. You're like, "Oh my god!" Like this is you. You feel like you're part of something hugely important. You feel like you're part of something 
that matters to everyone involved and like everything is at stake and that that it only it only just serves to emphasize those moments you know if they did that in real football maybe i'd watch it <laughs> oh my god you kidding me like yeah. Buffalo bills take the field and darren corb comes out with a loot and i'm like here we go yeah i'd be i mean yeah I'm... you know i think um <laughs> it just the like for the last 10 years of playing super giant games and and the relationship that uh, Ashley Barrett and Darren Corb have together, not just as kind of session musicians, but as touring musicians as well. It, it's something quite special. And I think like you go back to setting sail, coming home from Bastion. And I, I have to say, I was just delighted to see the same kind of, um, you know, duets and it's such a complimentary pair of voices. Um, and before we move on from the music, because really I feel like we're doing a disservice. There is so much unique uh, music in here that seems to just follow no particular kind of um, like paradigm. It, it's just so bizarre and and dissonant in some places and beautiful in others that I would strongly urge you to check out the the soundtrack if, if you have no interest in playing the game. But for those who have played the game, you'll you'll know that the the diversity of music that's on display there is is laudable. And and while we're on the subject, I think what I would also urge you to do is check out the Sound of Play Extra, where our very own. Uh, Tom Kuhlfeldt uh, of Lace Records and of Kinnerman's, of course, interviews Darren Corb. And the man is incredibly modest about his abilities and exceptionally erudite <laughs> in the way he describes how he uh, came about the music for, for Pyre. So we've got a ways into this recording and I don't feel like we've actually came across much of the gameplay. So let's spend a little bit of time stewing on, on the gameplay itself. Now, we, we've alluded to the fact that this game is, is essentially a game of two hearts. The first is the visual novel and then the, the other part is, is the rights themselves. Let's let's zero in on, on the on the visual novel aspect. So it is almost like a standard visual novel in the sense that the text is presented to you and you would scroll through the text and the story is basically kind of pr- predicted uh, and written and you, you carried along a very linear trajectory. It has certain choose-your-own-adventure-style components where you're given some uh, free time, if you like, to try and determine um, what to do with your free time. And and that, these are known as redirectivities, so it's the likes of scavenging for supplies, whether that's a consumable or something that will bring in money or something which will give you a benefit for the next right. Learning more of the world's law is another activity you can do, or you can mentor some of the XLs to improve their abilities. And the abilities, we'll, we'll touch on that when we go into the rights. Um, the interesting aspect of the actual delivery of some of this um, text for me is the use of hyperlinks in which you know we've alluded to this the game is full of these proper nouns which have very specific meanings and in order not to disrupt the flow and be very like exposition heavy the game will kind of provide hyperlinks with general glossary terms as as part of uh, as part of it so that you can basically Go through at your own pace and then stew on some of the lower level detail if you need. Leah, I know you're a person who adores visual novels. How did you find Pyre? <laughs> I I actually um I'm I'm glad that we have already mentioned the the hyperlinks thing. Um, because I love that. I, I think that it's great and I think that more games would benefit from doing it because you know, you, you do have an external source for lore. You have you have the book, which you've mentioned a couple of times. But just to define something, you shouldn't have to go into a different screen mm, to yeah. do so. Like, I, I really like that you can just kind of hover over something to get a brief background or explanation or whatever. And and sometimes those little bits of color are, are kind of, you know, 
are just that they are colorful as well as being instructive so um yeah i like how this is set up um i i do enjoy a visual novel from time to time and i liked the characters <laughs> here so um that that all worked it, very well it's for also me. the primary method of deciphering what it is that teaser is saying as well so Yes. <laughs> yeah. True. You, uh, he will. He will communicate in his like squawks and uh, in in his in his own vocalizations. And the only way to actually know in English uh, to what he is saying is to hover over uh, whatever vocalization it is that he's made. Um, from a as someone who like dabbles in visual novels, I'm kind of like hot and cold on them. The the ones that I that I tend to love uh, employ this uh, what Pyre uses. And where I feel like every conversation or every interaction with a character has some sort of meaning. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that it's going to change out the outcome of the game or anything like that. But like, like there's never a conversation or a link to click or a, a revealing of a page in the book or anything that doesn't instantly offer you something more about the world. Whether you're learning more about a character, learning more about the rights, the scribes, the um, uh, anything. The it just it's always offering you more, and you can choose to just you know slam through that and get to the next right if you want but like really engaging with that stuff like 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 most of the visual visual novels i've loved like it's all only additive and it only Mm -hmm. gives you more of an understanding of the people that you're traveling with the story that you're following um and pyre pyre i find visual novels difficult where i feel like they're wasting my time where i feel like having to read a lot more than Mm -hmm. than that is necessary for me to get the point that they're trying to convey. And I feel like there wasn't a lot of wasted text in this game. There's a lot of it, but I don't think there's, I don't think there's much wasted text. Yeah. Yeah. In a, uh, in a slightly more, um, not exactly cynical, but um, in a drier um, thing to mention here um, is that frequent, they're very good about like drip feeding the rewards. Like oftentimes if you go through a, um, a scene with a character, they will then, gain um a te- either a temporary or a permanent bonus afterwards like if you go into the the black wagon and talk to um a character before the next right you know they may gain plus one hope for the next right or they yep. might gain you know something else um or you might get some kind of little reward that um you know it wouldn't break it if you didn't get it but it's it's a bonus that um that they are able to kind of dabble these incentives throughout um th- throughout the gameplay as well and you can also screw that up too like tell oh, yeah. shay the wrong thing like it like encourage shay or like tell shay to be more realistic of course it's shay, that's the right name and then like you, if you tell her to be more realistic she's like oh i didn't expect you to say that and she walks away it's like minus three hope i'm like son of a bitch you know, son of a gun excuse me um and uh but but yeah so it, it does have those implications that's that's a nice little reward there and it makes sense as well. You're, you're, the story is that you are developing relationships between and with these characters. And the idea, not, not the point by any stretch, but the idea of being in and around other people is that the people we choose to be around, the people we choose to make our friends and family, are people who we have a positive effect on and have a positive mm. effect on us and can have a dramatically negative effect on and have a negative effect on us. So it makes sense in a, in a very points on a chart type of way to recognize that the more time you spend talking to these characters, it is going to have an impact, even if it's just for the next right, or, you know, even if it's something more, more sort of long lasting. Um, mm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and to, to gently move us on, James, while you've got the talking stick, I wonder if you can just expand on the, the black wagon and the, and the folding nature of the world map. 
Uh, yeah, so as mentioned, the black wagon is the, the vehicle that you are picked up and rescued onto when you first land in the downside, and it is your mobile home. I mean, it's, it's literally a, a, a wagon that is like an old-style sort of... Uh, the, the game has been compared to the Oregon Trail, and that wagon is no small part in that. Less, less dysentery. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> um, but it's it's a it's a moving uh, home that transports you, and as you pick up more uh, more uh, members of your your team, um, and you talk to them, and you visit different places, you get sort of trinkets and uh, personal items, and some of those have um, particular uses in the in the like the book and the the orb uh, the crystal. Sorry. Um, have particular uses in in the mechanics of the game, but some of them are just you know you can hover over, find something about them, or or just you know interact with them kind of passively. And uh, over the course of the game, for narrative reasons, the black wagon is upgraded as well and and starts to move around. And as you get more freedom to do that, particularly when you get to the point at which you realise there are a diminishing number of remaining rights or liberation rights available. Um, the, the world opens up and you can not only choose where your next right is going to be, but you can then fly uh, around the map to that. And it's got this really lovely, uh, like, the first time I uh, bumped into another uh, wagon, I felt like it was by accident, but then realized, like, you can see ahead from one fold mm. of the map to the next, and it has a really lovely way of, like, compressing and then expanding you into the next area. Um, and each each of the areas, each of the pages of that map, if you like, have a different feel to them. And moving around in the black wagon, um, you can kind of move as quickly or slowly as you like. And there are little things to find on the map, whether it's points of information or bumping into other wagons or never quite worked out what the little jumping fish things <laughs> were that you could collect. But they looked like imps, maybe, but I'm not sure if it did anything to kind of collect them. Um, but yeah, it's... it's uh, it's a, it's nice that the visual novel part of it is not entirely static. There is this kind of uh, movement between those different sections and between the rights. The other component of the game, of course, is the rights itself. Now, I'm going to do my best to try and give a, a very short, sharp indication about what this is. I think it, it's possibly quite self-evident, but there are two teams of three. Uh, each team is uh, tasked with plunging the orb into the opponent's pyre. Depending on who plunges the orb into the pyre, or indeed throws the orb into the fire, it will deplete the kind of numerical value of the pyre, and visually it'll make the pyre reduce down to, to a smouldering uh, set of embers. And when that is done, the rights are over, and uh, after a number of these rights, the, the player is tasked with actually going away and going through the Ascension right, as we've mentioned previously. Of course, that's a very reductive way of looking at it. Um, it's, a, it's a number of different techniques, a number of different mechanics that are there. I'm, I'm going to come to Brian. Brian, can you give me a, a kind of brief summary about what an actual game of, of Pi looks like in terms of like character movement and, and or, or rather the lack of character movement and, and how to, to score? Yeah, so it's essentially a three-on-three. My uh, comparison is basketball, but I heard you say rugby earlier, and as somebody who's not as familiar with rugby but who has seen a few things, that might actually be more of an apt comparison. 
So, I mean, like you said, the goal is to get the orb, you know, the ball to the other person's player, and it brings it down by a certain numerical value. So depending on the character you have, normally your smaller, quicker characters will bring it down by a smaller value than, say, your bigger, slower characters, because theoretically it's harder to get them across the the, the, the field, the pitch or whatever, um, without um, any, uh, you know, disturbance. Um so each character kind of is uh, has an attack or like a, a series of attack functions where they can either jump with the ball, they can throw the ball, some characters can teleport with the ball or, or do like a long kind of spring jump, and a defense, which is casting out an aura. So each character can cast out this aura. Now, the, the different characters cast them in different ways. Some of them, like Volford Sandal one, will actually create a turret that casts an aura around it. Um, uh Bertrude, we talked about her before, she can get a skill that casts it through walls. But essentially, if you cast this aura and it hits a, a player on the opposing team, they are banished from the field for a certain amount of time. So you can take multiple strategies here. You can My strategy, much like James's, was at the beginning all speed. I would try to take my speed characters and get them around the side and score. But if you're playing with larger characters, your strategy might be to banish the other players from the field so the field is literally open for a period of time so you can get your smaller character across the the field and score the only kind of uh wrinkle in this is that when your character scores they are then banished from the next round so if your character scores and drops the ball into the pyre for the next time until somebody scores again that character remains banished from the field um so it can create an interesting situation so if you have your big um you know, like your your number one player, the person that you like to play with the most, when they score, they're not on the field for the next time around. So you're not going to be able to go back and use the same strategy again. So it's constantly making you evolve your strategy based on who's on the field, who's left, and what type of characters you're playing against. Was that beautiful? Decent? A decent explanation. Okay, I was trying Yay. to I was trying to think of everything as I was going through it. I'm sure I forgot a lot. Yeah, it's it's a weird thing where uh, like. NBA Jam is often cited as as kind of a comparison uh, game, and and therefore people kind of refer to it in the sports uh, sort of references as like basketball. Rugby is also something that's relevant in in the case of rugby, often because you need to think tactically about where you're positioning your players in order to be able to get the ball to them. Um, but basketball is kind of a strange one because I I always think that is a very dynamic game. And I never felt like, in terms of like the passing and the zipping the ball around the field, I never felt like I had the ability to do that very often with the controls because you're only controlling one character. If they have the orb, they can't project their aura, usually. Um, and if they don't have the orb, then you're still only controlling one and then you kind of move them into a position and switch to a different character and then... Mm the characters you're not controlling are vulnerable to being attacked and there's not a lot this is, of this yeah. is really about interesting it. because like this sounds like a like a combative um observation but like mm. at this point i don't play pyro on anything but the hardest difficulty with all of the um yeah. the 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 stars put on the stars are the kind of the modifiers in the game to make it more difficult and 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 what i've observed in doing this is for me pyro is less a game of what to do when i have the orb and more of a game of yeah, yeah. what to do while I don't have the orb. So it's slightly yeah. different perspective. And I think that's where mm -hmm. that's where the game allows a little bit more creativity because I feel like I'm actually limited yeah. while I have the orb, but I have one one particular yeah, strategy, yeah. which is get it into that pyre as much as possible. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. And I was going to say, actually, uh, netball is arguably, for me, a better comparison than mm. basketball. Basketball, there's movement happening whether you have the ball or don't. Netball, it's the opposite of pyre, but when you have the ball, you do not move. At least that's yeah, my memory of netball. So your movement is restricted by whether or not you have the ball, and that then restricts your ability to make a shot or make a pass or that kind of thing. Uh, and And that's kind of that's a better comparison to me but it's it's the opposite absolutely i started off wanting to have the orb and wanting to score uh, a, a pyre if you like with it um and yes as i went on in the game i ended up thinking no I, this needs to be me positioning the play field so that i can then just put it into the the pyre at the end of potentially 30 seconds a minute of setup um sort of back and forth sort of cat and mouse game trying not to get the orb because you get to the point where um some of the opposition will throw the orb at your players to make them vulnerable um and uh that becomes a very mm. interesting thing but yeah i think for me the, the basketball thing going in with the expectation it was going to play like basketball definitely hurt it for me because as i say if i'm thinking of something like nba jam it's like pass 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 and that's just not possible with the way the controls work in Pyre, because, well, partly because without angling your character, you don't really know who you're going to pass to, and passing just randomly to another character is not necessarily what you want to always Agreed. be doing. Uh, and yeah, it became much more of a game in the latter stages, which is why my character uh, setup changed, of, right, who do I want to be able to control the, the space more than controlling Quite. the orb? Yeah, indeed. Leah, the gameplay itself is not just um, one-dimensional in the sense that your characters have a certain set of abilities. There is character progression and growth in there. Um, how well do you feel that that was implemented? I, I, I'm, I'm a little bit mixed on that. I, I liked that you were able to customize your character to a point. So uh, as you gain experience, you then unlock the ability to add um, up to four skills to your character um of eight so they each have two kind of trees that you can go down and you don't have to just pick one tree you can pick um you can start down the abilities of each one but you have to unlock the previous ability so you can't like get the last ability of both trees you can only uh at best you can split between the two of them um and yeah, I, I don't know. I, I'm i very much a menu-driven person. I really like menus uh, and, and trees and, uh, and job systems and that kind of stuff. This isn't really that kind of game, so I don't think it would have fit to necessarily have something too complex. But um, I, I think I would have liked a little bit more, not even variance, just a little bit more of an ability to shift things around it is possible to get something from um we haven't even mentioned falcon ron which i'm disappointed about um but mm -hmm. uh yeah so you can purchase a an item that lets you kind of respec your character yeah. um but there are only so many combinations that you're going to be able to have with the abilities that you can get so i don't know i i'm not sure how i would change it but um i, I thought it was pretty good for what it was um yeah. but not perfect certainly. my main criticisms are way too strong a word but something that i think is a bit of a miss is that it has the very conventional um skill progression trees and and what i'm expecting to see is, is something that makes uh 
maybe this is this this is a, a fault of my own. Something that makes a, a character very skillful and apposite in PvE, and then something that is a bit more agreeable with PvE. Uh, pvp for example i don't necessarily think that the the for, for each of the character my observations would be i don't think each side of the tree is is kind of equitable like that one side is clearly better than the other and it i always was of the opinion that um some of the kind of ambient skills some of the the the, the skills that aren't active skills but passive skills don't necessarily bestow the same benefit across there and i always felt that this is perhaps a bit of a limitation of simply offline multiplayer if there was more of an online scene which is something that is simply not available within um pyre then there might be a better use of some of those skill sets that that have things like you know the ability to come back from being banished quicker like that wasn't something that was of a great concern and that might just be that i'm uh, you know like dealing with it because of the way that i play the game but i I, I just felt that there was a way through yeah i was trying to avoid this but (laughs) there you are i do have the platinum trophy so whatever that whatever that means yeah you are a true oh, gamer. That's Thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm flattered. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> nice job. We've mentioned this previously, but one of the things the game does to almost kind of, um, I, I guess, like promote um, a bit of flexibility is is use a, a mechanic known as banishment sickness. If you do too many um, rights and you banish yourself by plunging the, the orb into the pyre, then you will get banishment sickness, which will eliminate you from from going through x number of of matches thereafter and thereby kind of brings you into a position where you're forced to bring characters that you might not find agreeable or necessarily um advantageous and of course one of the things the game does as well is it prevents you from allowing characters that aren't of a sufficiently high affinity or your friendship isn't necessarily high enough with them from ascending so you're only able to um put characters through that you have invested time in which i think is a genius move to kind of give you that sort of like XCOM style um relationship it's something that supergiant have as as i mentioned done in uh all of their games to one degree or another and what's really clever in pyre is that it works on several different levels of the gameplay so within the match if you score with a player you then lose them for the next round of play as rich you mentioned um so within the right, you're going to have to use characters you that aren't your favourite. Like, if it was me, I'd be using Rookie all the time. would always be the character that I would just essentially switch control to. Um, that's not possible within the right. And then between rights, you've got... I hadn't realised the banishment sickness was related to how much they had played and, and been banished. I figured it was a story thing, because for one... Uh, I think it is in one particular instance. Yeah, I lost I three I characters all yeah. at once. That was, yeah, not a fun moment. <laughs> uh, but So you've got that between the rights. And then, yeah, as you say, you can only liberate characters that you've already used a certain amount. You've already played with a certain amount and therefore developed relationships with a certain amount, which means that you're you're kind of caught between, okay, for narrative reasons, I might want to liberate this character, but ideally it would be the characters that I don't really use that much. But as I said, if I'd done that, I'd have got rid of Volfred, like as soon as he came onto the team. That wasn't an option, so I ended up having to play with him, and that meant that it expanded my repertoire of skills in in the game. It's something that they've done really well here, I think. Of course, we do have some criticism of the, the gameplay from Seth from the forum, who wrote to say, After picking Pyre up in a bundle recently, I decided to give it a go in time for the show. And because Supergiant games haven't disappointed me yet, 
While I wasn't let down and I enjoyed my playthrough, I would probably place this at the bottom of their releases so far. I felt like the gameplay was missing something. I don't like that the players stand still when not used and are still open to attack. It just made pushing forward with everyone a little useless to me. My tactic was to use a faster character to wipe the team out and quickly switch to a brute for a big score. The rights felt like an interesting idea with some good sports-based elements, but it's something that could definitely be improved with the second game, but that's not really the Supergiant style. Uh, I think I agree with most of that, to be honest. Uh, I don't think... I, I think that that's where I was for a lot of initially, and as we've talked about, as you play more, you realise that, yes, you are very limited, even if you have three players, if you've got the orb in, in one player's, uh, one character's hands, you're very limited with what you can do, and, and I tried to, like, run up the field with the orb and then throw it back to someone and then bring them up as well. And that, that didn't really mm. ever work for me, uh, which is why the basketball kind of analogy kind of falls yeah. apart a little bit for me. Um, yeah, I don't necessarily disagree with this. It just, over time, how much it bothered me kind of fell away a bit. And I, I realized that I could kind of change the way I played to suit the game a bit more. But I don't necessarily disagree with the, the uh, complaints, just the amount that they affected my I game. think I would respectfully disagree with this observation purely based around the the description I gave a little bit earlier which is to say that again for me for me the game is less about pushing forward and scoring at the, at the difficulty yeah. that I played at it it is more about what you're not doing while holding the orb and and not mm-hmm. to to denigrate Seth's point because I think it's very kind of astutely made um I look at that almost as a sort of like oh I wish I could basically pass the ball forward in rugby i think that would possibly break the game Mm -hmm. and i think the game's difficulty is predicated around the mechanics of the game in a way that isn't necessarily the case if you're playing on like very easy for example and i did (laughs) (laughs) i i agree with with everything seth says about the gameplay like about and i understand the feelings um that that he or she has regarding that um it just those those instances of not moving and kind of the stoppage to the game, uh, mm-hmm. only moving when you have the ball or the one character at a time, really for me made it feel more, much more like a tactics game as yeah. opposed to uh, like a like a, a proper sports title. And for me, that like I enjoyed that aspect of it. You know, like I, you know, I'd be, you know, clear, I would position somebody down at the bottom of the map, then I'd take my quick character and try to lure the other characters up to the top and then pass. Like I, I enjoyed that aspect of it, but I could totally see where that might bring somebody who's thinking. Like you said, James, like the basketball comparison actually kind of let you down a little bit, thinking that yep. it would be yep. a little bit more of a joined movement-based thing. When in reality, it's this kind of stop and start. So I get that. I get that completely. Wonderful. Thank you. So let's move to some form feedback. Leah, can you take Toon Skatoons, please? So Toon Skatoon says, if you like sports and sports culture, then the story and gameplay of Pyre are likely going to feel as familiar as the squeak of new sneakers on a parquet floor. Like Mighty Ducks coach Gordon Bombay or the Longest Yards Paul Crew, you are found guilty of a crime and as a result find yourself rounding up a ragtag bunch of athletes to play a sport that sort of looks like basketball and sort of looks like the Mesoamerican ball game played in the Mayan creation myth the Popol Vuh, but with swagged out dogs and magic exploding flappy birds and an element of firefighting, <laughs> all of which is truly fun on its own. However, once you've notched a few victories and given one rousing Normandale, Tony D'Amato, Ted Lasso-style speech, the game gives you the chance to eject one of your players out of the penal colony and beyond the stars. This shoves Pyre's subject matter towards something more universal than sports, mortality. The transformation hinges on the brilliant decision to make the number of liberation rights limited, 
creating an urgency felt by actual athletes who know that as the saying goes, father time is undefeated, and no matter how many W's a team or player collects, there's always the nagging desire to achieve glory once more. Pyre is never going to be as popular of a fake sports coaching simulator as Pokemon, but through its thoughtful combination of story and mechanics, both familiar and new, it has made an evangelical fan out of me. Uh, just on, on that feedback quickly, uh, we didn't mention, uh, we talked about it being a visual novel with, with dialogue options and stuff. The, yeah, when you build that speech together and you can sort of take three different parts of the sentence and kind of change them and switch them to... to build a speech without having to actually type it in or anything that was really cool yeah. i really like the way that they did can you did just that. completely whiff that speech or is it always successful <laughs> i believe it's always successful yeah <laughs> yeah oh that would be awesome everybody's like uh <laughs> all right <laughs> i guess brian if i can ask you to take shiny waylord guys yeah yeah shiny waylord guy from the forum says i absolutely loved pyre not so much for the fantasy basketball gameplay which was perfectly fine but for the sense of atmosphere and for the amazing characters as I grew to know and care for each of them, it became harder and harder to deal with the responsibility of having their fates in my hands. Knowing that I could help them escape to a better life, but that would mean never seeing them again, made for a series of gut-wrenching decisions throughout the game. I could never replay it because the story of what happened during my first and only playthrough is still engraved in my mind, and I would hate to rewrite any of it. Special shout-out to the end credit song, which has customized verses for each character depending on the decisions you've made through your playthrough. I thought that was incredible. Thank you. James? Uh, yeah, we also have one from Radical Dog. Uh, very fitting name for, <laughs> for this particular game. Uh, Radical Dog says, My favourite Supergiant game. I like the basketball-type gameplay a lot, and I think it makes for a very inspired scenario that's not like anything else I've read. Uh, from a storytelling perspective, I have to give credit to the devs for the massive branching potential, as different teams could be fighting for their place in the tournament. I did try to accept the results without save-scumming to see what would happen, and I'd encourage everyone to set the difficulty high enough to challenge them. However, there were a handful of must-win results as well as at least one match thrown to help Nay's love get through. I played this right after Mass Effect 3, and quite the contrast. Instead of three different coloured endings, there must be tens of thousands of combinations in Pyre. Yeah, it's a great observation. So John Cheatham, or John Cheatham, apologies John, I'm not sure how to how to pronounce this right uh, this is one of the best games i will possibly never want to play again not because there was any aspect of it i didn't enjoy because the story the game handcrafted just for me based on both my decisions and the outcome of the rights felt so finished and perfect i fell in love with this brightly colored land of exiles and the many plucky weirdos fighting for their freedom in it with each conversation each victory and each defeat i became more invested in the story that was unfolding based partly on my deliberate choices and partly on how the rights shook out the endings for my team felt canonical. In my mind, Rookie, Hedwin and Jodariel did make it out, and are fighting the good fight they always wanted to. Volfra didn't. The mastermind behind it all remains in the downside, waiting for the snatches of intel from the Commonwealth and the re revolution brewing there. Pamitha, the star player of almost all of the rights, likewise stay behind, remaining in place after a hard-fought liberation right. As weary of the fighting as she was, it felt a suitable end to her story and a chance to decide her own path in a way her life had so often denied her. The feeling I had when I finished the game was one I usually get from finishing a brilliant novel, heartache not to be with those characters anymore and for their time together to be so definitively over, but certainly that simply restarting would never be the same. All the more so because Pyre's mutable narrative. Pyre also has some of the most gorgeous art ever made by the incredible Gen Z, and my personal favourite Darren Korb soundtrack. 
Knights of the Sea, what a tune. I had the soundtrack on repeat for mm-hmm. days after finishing this. And finally, we have Telepri, who says, Supergiant's usual adjustable difficulty pairs so well with Pyre's Sports League tragedy. There were opponents I felt so strongly equally deserved their liberation, even if the Nightwing's ultimate goal was pure, that I would set the difficulty for some rights to an insurmountable challenge. If I could win, great, but I was fine with losing those. Each character was so well-developed that it was bittersweet to see any one of them go. Pyre is among my all-time favorites. I'd love to see Supergiant make a return to this sort of experimentation, and while I love that they continue creating new characters, I wouldn't mind seeing Jadariel and the crew again someday. Supergiant is building a large enough catalog of characters they could do their own kart racer or Mario Party with all the previous game's casts. Thank you, Leah. So we have a handful of three-read reviews here. Uh, Leah? Uh, Tales from the Backlog says, Creative Mixed Bag. Shiny Waylord Guy says, Meaningful Heartbreaking Choices. And Toon Scotoon says, Reading and Writing. Oh, I think that's an interesting one, of course, because he's using the right word of reading and writing. <laughs> well done, ah. ah. Yeah, very nice. Uh, yes, our summaries. I think, I, think, I think I've got this right. James, let's begin with you. I am really conflicted about this game. Like, hand on heart, as I sit here now, I am way more positive on this game than I thought I was going to be like 48 hours ago. Um, and that's a weird situation to be in. I would also have to say, hand on heart, this probably is of the four Supergiant games, my least favourite of them. And that's like, what's the opposite of damning with faint praise? Like, all of their <laughs> games are like top, probably like 20, almost. They're they're like right up there. They would have to be in discussion for my favourite games. Um, it also suffers a bit. So I played Hades before it, but it ends up being sandwiched between Transistor and Hades, uh, both games which so Transistor's probably my favorite Supergiant experience and Hades was the most immediately gripping of their games I guess overall um so it's it's difficult and and I have to accept that I spent 8 of a 12 hour playthrough probably um frustrated that I kind of wasn't either I wasn't getting it or something about what the game was expecting of me just wasn't working and so some some of the comments there um, that we had kind of alluded to that a little bit. Um, that I don't know if that's a failing of me or if it's a failing of the game or if it's an in, something intentional that the the game did to sort of put me on the back foot and not have me understand how to play this game or at least feel like I didn't understand how to play the game. Um, but I cannot deny that a game that has this much uh, dialogue, this much story, just for want of a catch-all term, in it, um, to the point where Greg Kasavin said this was the most he's ever written for a game by far. Um, and yet, we, as we said, it doesn't feel like there's fluff in there. Like Usually you would have to have a team of writers and a team of editors to get something this honed and sharp and uh, narratively... Uh, uh, so intertwined with the gameplay and the themes and and just so tight um but just having one person have to write more than they could possibly imagine writing also means it's going to hopefully turn out very tight because they're not going to be able they don't have the time and the capacity to put more in than is necessary uh and so i loved that and ultimately my lasting memory is going to be the the way that the gameplay and the art and the the story and the music obviously all come together and the fact that I I was 
I can cry at the drop of a hat, but the fact that on a screen that is a bunch of characters where I click on and get a few sentences about what happened to them afterwards, I was just absolutely wrecked by it is the only way I can describe it. Like joyfully, but uh, just just so completely emotional at something that had been apparently a sports game. Uh, and that's kind of wild to be in that situation. So uh, that's kind of where I net out on this, that that rambling summary. Thanks, James. Just a quick question for you. Do you see yourself returning for more? Mm. As we're playing this now, it's like it, it would be ridiculous, wouldn't it, to get to the point where the last few hours of this game I felt like I got it and then it was like, yeah, okay, I'm done now, I'm moving on. But ultimately, but also talking about this and talking with you all, I'm really jazzed about the idea of Supergiant games in general and part of me says, hang on, I've only played Transistor once, why haven't I played that again <laughs> as well? So I'm sure I will at some point, but yeah, it's not going to be one that I immediately go back to tomorrow, I don't That's think. Fair. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Leah. So I did not think I was going to like Pyre very much. Um, I mostly played it to humor Rich. <laughs> and I, <laughs> I, I, I honestly, I thought that this was going to be, I really didn't want to play a sports game. Um, and I thought that's what this was. So um, I, I, I didn't have very high expectations going into it. Uh, but by the end, I... I I mean, like I said, I have a Tizo plush. Like I, I I don't know what to say. I I uh, I really I I went down the 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 path of of really getting into the characters of this game. Really getting into. I still won't say that I really liked the the sports parts, but they were inoffensive enough that I did not feel that they interfered with my enjoyment. Um, I I could have probably done without them, but I I I get the. Uh, the importance of them to the narrative, and I I, I appreciate why they're there, and um, I'm I'm glad that um, they are there for the people who do enjoy that sort of thing in particular. Um, so yeah, I I really I really think that especially if you've played other super giant games and enjoyed them, and maybe just skimmed over this one like I did for whatever reason, um, this is very much worth going back to uh it, it does a an excellent job of being one of those types of games and by one of those types of games i do mean kind of a a visual novel you know it it, it has characters that so the way that i would normally play something like this I, it, it's kind of a toss-up as to whether i want to play it for the mechanics and, you know, keep the characters that I like around the longest, you know, because they're going to get me the best results. In this case, I, you know, the characters that I like are the ones that I actually want to get rid of because I want them to be happy. So it's, it's, it's a weird situation to kind of be in, but um, I, I really enjoy that Supergiant was able to construct a game that did that for me. So um, I, I definitely recommend it. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I think it's, it's very much worth a playthrough. I don't know that I will go back to it soon. Um, I have played it through twice, but, um, I, I will say that, uh, much like James, I'm now thinking, well, I never actually finished Transistor, <laughs> so maybe I, maybe that's something I should check out. Uh, so yeah, play, play Pyre. It's good. Thank you. Brian. <laughs> um, I'm going to use my time a little differently, Rich, if that's okay. Um, super, uh, this is my favorite Super Giant game. I don't think it's the best Super Giant game, but it's my personal favorite. I've said that to Rich a couple times before the recording, and and I, I still I still mean that. Um, however, um, as the date of recording, it's June 25th, um, 
2022. And I would just like to say that uh, this is a game about fighting against an establishment that establishes arbitrary rules to punish those that do not deserve it, to put people in a bad position that are in opposition to that power that disrupt the norm. Um, I feel that the message of this game right now in particularly is profoundly important um, that by simply reading, knowing, and advocating for the things that you believe in um, is something that should and will disrupt and challenge the authority. And I think that right now, um, as of the time of recording, this game takes a special meaning for me. And I would like to think that, much like the characters in this game, that despite the fact that their political overseers have made decisions about things on their behalf, that through uh, through teamwork and through camaraderie and through believing in the establishment of something better and something better than what you have now, that in the end um, you can achieve satisfactory results. And for that reason and that reason alone, right now, on this day, I highly encourage anybody listening to this to go play Pyre and think about the message that it's conveying. I mean, this is why Brian's my favorite podcaster. I think he just might have holded my beard, (laughs) me, uh, on a show. Uh, Brian. I didn't mean to. I didn't. I was not (laughs) attempting to do that. I was thinking about it a lot throughout the podcast. And the more and more things we talked about, it just felt, it felt um yeah felt like the well, right well, show thank you like sincerely for for bringing that up like i really appreciate that and and that's a you know something that i'll think about myself in terms of my summary um so every year when leon puts the call out for games that we would like to cover we're given an opportunity to put forward a game that has a special meaning to us or something that we want to kind of bring forward and for the majority of us i imagine and i don't want to speak for all of the team but i imagine it's a bit of a consider thought i think for Leah, it's probably more of a conversation about what rpg she wants to subject a, a number of us to um but for me i try and put a lot of thought into like what we can tease out because there's an implication that i'll be hosting the show and in the past couple of years it's been games that i found easy to talk about because they have like mechanically easy or they kind of engender a certain feeling in me so it's like a boy in his blob monster and i could talk about this for days Pyre has been up there for a really long time. It's a game that I've been nervous about covering because it's just so woven into who I am and it reflects so much of my core values and it reflects so much of my personal interests and the gameplay itself kind of embodies a lot of things that bring me to games and give me a lot of feelings about games. And so really what I'm trying to say here is that I'm just delighted to have been able to have this conversation with the three of you guys and 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 i think for me it, it is the strongest of recommends the themes that we talk about the way that which the supergiant games have been able to discuss some of these incredibly complicated situations in in such a beautiful way and bring it all together this is this package that kind of uniquely blends all of this incredible art and and, and the music um in in the most odd way the way that they conceived of the game and the concept before the game came together just fascinates me. I can't recommend this game enough, although I recognize it's not for everybody. And I think what I would say to close is that if if one of the listeners has heard this and they've been encouraged to go away and play it and inspect it as more than just a game that's a facsimile for sport, then I've done a good job. So 
with this, um, I think, again, just to say the, the, the kindest of thanks to, to James, Brian and Leah for joining me on this one. And a, a big thanks to, to Editor Jay and, and for those who have took the time to put in some correspondence. And, and of course, lastly, all of the listeners. Next time in issue 525, join Tony, Tom, Chris and Darren as they chaotically compete for a gold crown in Fall Guys Ultimate Knockout. Their journey began on a barren waste where the reader arrived afraid and alone When they arrived the book of rights awakened the night wings and ignited the Forgiveness. She stayed true till the end.